I did mention that this morning we're wrapping up our series on 1 Peter. And so I thought it'd be helpful to give an overview of the entire book just so that we can do this one more time, see the big picture of, of what Peter's been saying to us. So chapter one, verses one and two, he starts right off introducing himself to his readers. And then in verses three through 14, he lays the foundation for the entire book by telling us that through Jesus, God has given us living hope, which means that because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, because we're trusting him, we have the certainty of being filled with joy forever in the presence of Jesus Christ. Knowing him, loving him, worshiping him, we have that certainty, that confidence. That's the living hope. That's the foundation of the whole book. Chapter 1, verse 3 through 13. Then there's two big sections that build off of that as I look at this book as a whole. From chapter 1, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 6, Peter says that because we have this living hope, therefore, let's do these things. Let's, let's battle against sin. Let's stop sinning, first thing. Let's earnestly love each other from the heart. Let's live lives that glorify God in the world so that lost people will see the glory of God shining from us. And let's be willing to suffer for Christ. That's the first big section there, chapter 1, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 6. Then there's a second big section, chapter 4, verse 7 through chapter 5, verse 11. Peter says that since Jesus could come back at any time, any moment, we should be devoted to prayer, love, hospitality, and serving each other. We should rejoice in God through our suffering. It's just temporary. Rejoice in God through our suffering. Elders in the different churches Peter's writing to, shepherd your flocks. We saw that last week. And then let's humble ourselves under God's mighty hand during trials. That's the part we're going to focus on this morning. And then in chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, Peter brings his letter to a conclusion. He encourages us to stand firm in God's grace, and to greet each other warmly and affectionately. There's the whole book right there. Amazing letter. Thank you, Father, for having Peter write this letter. Now, since the beginning of the year, we've been working on how to study the Bible. We want to see everyone in Grace Church growing in confidence that you can study the Bible. It's not just elders who study the Bible and teach you, but God wants each one of us to be studying the Bible on our own. And so we've been working on that. And we've seen that one of the most important steps to study a passage is to understand what the author's main point or points are. And you might wonder, how do we figure out what the author's main points are, and the author gives clues. Every author gives clues to show us what the main points are, and one of the most obvious clues is commands, because every command is a main point. So let's read through this passage for today, chapter 5, verses 6 through 14, and I've underlined all the commands. There are six of them. Look at what Peter writes. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, 
seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, that's a reference to the church at Rome, so the, the, church, the church is in Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son, Peter's spiritual son, Mark. Then he says, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So did you see those six commands there? These are the main points. Now, as I studied these commands, I saw them breaking into three different sections. See if this makes sense to you. I saw a first section, the first four commands in verses 6 through 11, which I think tell us how we should respond to trials. Notice that the word suffer occurs in verses 9 and verses 10. I think that's a, a theme of that first section in verses 6 through 11. There's four commands there. How to suffer is the point of that section. And then there's one command in verse 12 that summarizes the whole letter and says, stand firm in this grace, this grace of living hope that we have through Jesus. Then there's one final command about greetings, which he gives us in verses 13 through 14. Okay, so three sections. Let's start with this first section. Four commands, verses 6 through 11, about how to respond to suffering. Now, I would guess that some of you this morning here are going through deep waters of, of suffering, deep difficulties of trials. And I'm praying, as we prayed earlier, I'm praying that God will touch your heart with exactly what you need to hear. Every believer goes through suffering. We've seen that through 1 Peter. We'll see that again this morning. Do not feel like you're alone. Do not feel like you've been singled out. May the Lord encourage you and comfort you and strengthen you. And those of us who are not going through trials right now, that we can learn more so that when the trials come, because they will, we'll be strong to respond the way God wants us to. First command is that we humble ourselves, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, verses 6 and 7. Let's read them again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, what does it mean to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? Well, let's say, for example, that on a Thursday, you're at work and your boss walks into your office and he sets 50 file folders on your desk and says, I need to leave early, got a long weekend for me, sorry about you, but this needs to be finished by the time I get back. And, uh, you know, I hate to put this on you, but I have to, so I hope your weekend goes well. I'll see you when I return. And, and then when you humbly and graciously say, I've already got too much to do. I was going to work through the weekend anyway. He says, I'm really sorry. 
I, I've got to go. And he closes the door and leaves. So with a trial like that, what would it mean to humble yourself under God's mighty hand? What would it mean? First, it means that you see that this trial ultimately is from God's hand. That's why we need to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. Now, obviously, the boss had something to do with it, a lot to do with it, and what he did was wrong, all right? But God is sovereign over your boss. Remember Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He, the Lord, turns the king's heart wherever the Lord wills it. So God is ultimately sovereign over everything. There's mystery there, but that's what the Bible clearly teaches. So even though, yes, your boss had a role in what's going on with this trial, ultimately, this is from God's mighty hand. Now, because it's from God's mighty hand, because he's allowed it to come, that means he also could remove it, right? So part of this would be praying, saying, God, could you please change his heart as he's walking down to his car. Change his heart, have him come back up here and say, forgive me, I'll do this work. Or you could pray, Lord, get me a new boss. Or you could pray, how about a better job and a better boss? And you can pray about all of those things because God's hand can do all of those and often God loves to answer those kinds of prayers and do exactly those sorts of things. But he doesn't always do those. He doesn't always answer those prayers with a, with a yes which is why if he chooses to have that stack of 50 file folders stay on your desk, then you continue to humble yourself under his mighty hand, which means that you, in addition to trusting that this is from God, it means that you trust his love and his wisdom in giving you this trial. You trust his love in giving you this trial. You trust his wisdom in giving you this trial. You know that this is not punishment. We can very often go there, but because you're trusting Jesus, all of the punishment that you deserve for your past sins, for your present sins, for all of your future sins, all of the punishment that you deserve was poured out upon Jesus 2,000 years ago on the cross. He absorbed every bit of the Father's wrath against you for your sin. It's all been absorbed and dealt with and gone. So you will never face punishment, not in this life or in the life to come because you're trusting Jesus and because of the finished work of the cross. And so this 50 file folders on your desk is not God's judgment or punishment against you. It is a gift from his wisdom and his love for you. Remember we've seen through the book of 1 Peter some of the reasons God allows trials to come our way. One is because it's a gift to enlarge our capacity for joy in Christ, to enlarge our capacity now and forever. And that's a gift. It's also a gift because it gives us an opportunity to display Christ's glory. As your fellow associates see your peace and even your joy, as you work through these 50 file folders with a long, long weekend, they will know there's something otherworldly about your joy. And you can tell them it's Jesus, and that will display his glory. Also can be a way to advance the gospel. So trials and suffering are gifts from God to enlarge our capacity for joy, to give us opportunities to display Christ's glory, and to advance the gospel. 
And those are reasons why when we face trials and suffering, we should humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. So those of you who are suffering right now, whether it's medical issues, maybe your car is broken down again, or maybe your children are in a stage of being particularly rebellious or whatever it might be, maybe your marriage has pain and tension, humble yourself under God's, God's mighty hand. He has allowed this to take place. You can pray that it, it, it goes away. Do that, do pray. If he allows it to stay, then you trust his wisdom and you trust his, his love. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Now, what would it look like not to humble yourself under God's mighty hand? Let's be clear on what the alternative would be. Something like this. So your boss leaves, the door closes, you're there in your, in your office, and so you say to yourself, really? Really? I've worked so hard at this company. I'm always the one doing the work here. Really, God? I mean, it's like my car's got problems and there's health issues and we're already facing financial pressures. And now this, really? All of this on top of that? And grumbling and complaining. Now, is that humbling yourself under God's mighty hand? No, that's not. Humbling yourself under God's mighty hand would be something like this. Boss walks out, door closes, you're left alone in your office. Oh, Father, this is hard. Help me to trust you. Help me to see your wisdom more clearly now, to see your love more clearly now. I know you are perfectly wise. You are overflowing with love. I, I see the cross. I see you sent your son. You do love me, Lord. Help me to trust you. Strengthen me. Comfort me. Help me shine with your glory. Oh, God, help me. That's humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. And God makes an amazing promise of what he will do when we humble ourselves under his mighty hand. Look at verse six. Here's what God promises to do. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that, two very important words, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Think about it like this. One reason trials are hard is because they, they make you look lowly. They make you look weak, right? I mean, when you're sitting there at your desk with these 50 file folders and there's nothing you can say about it, you're just, he's the boss, that makes you look lowly. It makes you look weak, right? And that makes trials and suffering hard. But God promises that if you will humble yourself under his mighty hand at the proper time, he will exalt the God of the universe, who's created everything, he will exalt you. Now, when will that happen? Well, God can do some of that in this life. You can see that throughout the scriptures. But because the whole thrust of Peter's letter has been to have us look ahead to the, the living hope that will be ours when Jesus comes back, I think that's Peter's focus. At the end of history, when Jesus Christ comes back, because you've humbled yourself under God's mighty hand, God, at that point, will exalt you. That's what he's promised to do. I thought about Johnny Erickson. Um, many of you have probably heard of Johnny Erickson. When she was a teenager, she dove into a lake, tragically, and, and broke her neck and has been completely paralyzed ever since. She is 69 years old now. So this is a little over 50 years ago. 
So think about it. For 50 years, she's been paralyzed. With all the physical difficulties and pain that is involved with that, for 50 years, she's had to have other people bathing her and clothing her and feeding her. And she has humbled herself under God's mighty hand. Not perfectly, none of us do, but persistently and beautifully. Here's a quote from one of her books. This is amazing. She says, this paralysis is my greatest mercy. Wow. Why? Here's why. God has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, and she's had times of great pain, the closer his embrace. Why would this paralysis be her greatest memory? We've talked about this before. Our times of closest fellowship with the Lord are in the most painful times. That's what Johnny Erickson has experienced. And so Johnny has humbled herself under God's mighty hand, and because she has, at the proper time, when Jesus comes back, God is going to exalt her. It's not the proper time yet, but it will be the proper time then. He is going to exalt her, and I look forward to seeing Johnny Erickson exalted. God, imagine, there's Johnny Erickson with all the redeemed, okay? And God is going to wipe away every tear from her eyes. And then God is going to say to her, Johnny, stand forth. He's going to say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Can you feel that? He's going to exalt her before all of the redeemed. But then, then I think at that, at that point, Johnny's going to fall down at Jesus' feet and, and maybe say something like this. This is just my own thoughts, but here's what I think she might say. She's going to fall down at Jesus. She's just been exalted before all the redeemed, and she's going to fall down at Jesus' feet and say, no praise should come to me. Jesus, you paid it all. All to you I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, like we sing, you washed me white as snow. You gave me faith. You comforted me. You gave me strength. You gave me patience. You held me when I thought it was too much. You comforted me when I thought I couldn't take any more. You've done it all. All glory to Jesus. All praise to Jesus forever and ever. And then all the redeemed are going to join her, falling down at Jesus' feet and worshiping him. And it'll be a glorious moment. And Jesus will be praised, and Johnny will have been exalted, and we will all be blessed in enjoying all of that. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, because at the proper time, he will exalt you. Singling you out, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's what Peter is encouraging us with. So that's what will happen at the end of history. But when we go through trials and suffering, while we may be very thankful for what's going to happen at the end of history, we may be wondering what's going to happen now. 
Because trials and suffering always bring problems now. Like, what if I don't get this extra work done and my boss fires me when he gets back? What if I'm not able to find a comparable job or any job? What if we run into severe financial difficulties? Right? Those are some of the reasons why trials and suffering are so difficult. It's because of our anxieties that we have now, right? And look at what Peter says in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Picture your anxieties like a... Any, any of you gone backpacking before? Okay, I used to when I was way younger. My family... Um, but imagine a backpack like filled with 50 kilograms of anxieties and worries. Okay, that's a lot. I looked it up. I, I think about pounds. But anyway, so 50 pounds. Now, you have two options when you are carrying a load of anxiety like that. You can either continue to carry it yourself or you can take it off and hand it to the Lord. Because he's, he's saying, I'll take those. I, 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 I can, my job is to take those. I can handle all of those. So we can either carry them ourselves or we can cast them upon the Lord. That's what Peter is telling us here. He says, give the backpack to God. Trust all of your anxieties to him. Every single one, trust him. Now why? Because of those last five words of verse seven. Because he cares for you. He cares for you. Now, I just want to linger here because none of us sees that clearly enough this morning. None of us understands that clearly enough. How much does God care for you? Well, probably the most powerful measure is the fact that at great cost to himself, he sent his own son to the cross and he punished your sins in his own son on the cross. That's how much he loves you and cares for you. That is a massively huge amount of love and care. And his love and care for you is not just love and care for you kind of as, as a part of a large group but if you could see inside of his heart right now, he has love and care for you as an individual. He cares about you. He's always thinking about you. He has never, ever forgotten you. He knows everything that's going on in your life, every concern, every need, every difficulty, every trial. The creator, God of the universe, who is massive beyond our wildest imagination, powerful, more powerful than we could possibly conceive. He cares for you. You, right now. He knows the anxieties. He sees that backpack. He wants you to hand that to him because his power is in control of all your job questions, all your financial questions, all your health issues, all your relational difficulties. His power is in control of all those and because he cares for you. So you can know that he will do in each of those areas whatever will bring you the greatest joy in him. So you don't need to worry. He may allow trials to stay. And if he does, it's because that's going to bring you even more joy in him, which is what we are all about anyway. So you are set. So casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's the first command. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God when you face trials and suffering. The second command in this first section about how to respond to trials, actually the, there's the next three. I put them all together because I think that Peter puts them all together. They are be sober-minded and watchful and resist the devil. And again, notice how he puts these together in verses 8 and the beginning of verse 9. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. So all these commands are, are put together here. Now, notice Peter mentions the devil. And let's just be clear on who is the devil. The devil is a real spiritual being, an angel, a fallen angel, an angel who's rebelled against God and whose passion is, if possible, to destroy your salvation, to take you with him into hell. That's the devil's passion, his mission, his purpose, if possible, to do that. And whenever we face trials or suffering, we need to be sober-minded and watchful because at those moments, the devil is prowling like a roaring lion, seeking an opportunity in those trials, in that suffering, to devour you spiritually. Try to think of an illustration. Let's say that you're, you're watching football on a Saturday afternoon, just sitting in your couch and enjoying the game, and you get a text from your wife who's in a different, different part of, of, the, of the villa. She says, there's a lion in the house. He looks hungry. Help. Now, you're not just going to settle back and, well, whatever. They're winning! No, you're not, not going to keep focused on the game, right? Okay? You will turn it off, or, and you will be watchful. Where is the lion? You'll be alert, sober. You'll be ready to fight the lion, right, men? Okay? Ready to fight the lion, to protect your family, to resist the lion. You won't just keep on living as usual. There's a lion in the house. That's how Peter wants us to feel, alert and sober, ready to resist him. When we face a trial, the devil wants to use that trial to devour us spiritually. Let me say that again. Whenever you face any trial, any suffering, the devil is planning on using that trial or that suffering to destroy you spiritually. That's his hope, his purpose. He wants to use that trial to make us complain against God. Because when we complain, if he can make us complain, he has just sunk his fangs into us. He's gotten a hold of us. That's what happens when you complain. Or when we grumble or get hopeless or have a pity party, he's just slashed us with his claws, wounded us. That's his intention through trials and suffering to do all he can to destroy us spiritually. So, when your boss leaves those 50 files on the desk and walks out and closes the door, you have a much bigger problem than just the 50 file folders on your desk. There's a line in your office with you. That's what's going on. And you need to resist him. That's the main problem you're facing at that moment. So what should you do? There's a line in the office. What should you do? Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus broke Satan's power on the cross. So don't be afraid. If you, as you, by faith, resist him, as James says, resist the devil and he will, what does the verse say? Flee from you. And Peter here gives us two truths from the sword of the spirit that we can wield against the lion. The first truth is in verse 9. Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith. Here's the truth to know. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood, brothers and sisters in Christ, throughout the world. So the first truth is that you're not alone in this suffering. 
Now, I would guess many of us, when we go through times of suffering, we can feel like we are the only ones, we are all alone, and that can be very discouraging, very destructive, very disheartening to you, and we go there, don't we? But Peter wants to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Every follower of Jesus is going through suffering. Remember, we looked a few weeks back, it's Acts 14.22, where Paul is preaching to churches he has planted, and his sermon in every one of these places is based on the statement, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So everyone who's on their way to the kingdom is going through what? Not just tribulations, many tribulations. So yes, your brotherhood, the brothers and sisters in Christ, everybody is suffering in life. You are not alone. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, indeed, everyone who is godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone. So every follower of Jesus will suffer. You are not alone. And if you understand that you're not alone, but that this is God's plan for all of his people because suffering is a gift, it enlarges our capacity for joy in Christ, it gives us opportunities to display his glory, it gives us opportunities to advance the gospel, you're not alone. This is part of God's wise and loving plan for all his people. That's the first truth. And the second truth is in verse 10 and 11. Christ's eternal glory will more than make up for your temporary suffering. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. He is sovereign. He has dominion. He has authority. He will do this. You can be absolutely confident about it. Amen. Now notice that phrase, a little while. Suffering in this life is just for a little while. I mean, I know if I get sick sometime like with cold or flu and it's been two days, I start thinking, it's just, it's just I'm never going to get better. It's going to last forever, right? Okay? And especially when you have even worse trials, you can start to think, this is how my life is going to be forever. No, your suffering is temporary. Glory is eternal. Suffering is temporary. Glory is eternal. And and again, I would encourage all of you, just take a few minutes this week and start to think about what does eternal mean? We're talking about eternal. I mean, look as far down that timeline as you can see. You will never see the end of it. You know why? Because there is no end to it. Eternal glory, temporary glory suffering, after you've suffered a little while, and the eternal glory that you will behold in Christ, his beauty, his majesty, his love, his power, his wisdom, beholding him, worshiping him, fellowshipping him, fellowshipping with him in his glory, which is going to last forever, that will far more than make up for our temporary sufferings now. So that's the first four commands. That's the first section. We should humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Okay, those of you who are going through suffering now, I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're strengthened. I hope you've got some, yes, Lord, help me to resist. Help me to trust you. He will comfort you. He will meet you. He'll give you all the grace you need. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Okay, now let's go to the second section of these verses. He calls us to stand firm in God's grace. That's verse 12. The way that he 
closes verse 11 with that word amen and then opens up verse 12, shows he's kind of coming to a conclusion here. So verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. So Peter explains, Silvanus, he, he possibly helped Paul write the letter, excuse me, Peter write the letter, Peter um, dictated it to him possibly, and or Silvanus carried the letter to the readers that were living in what's modern day Turkey. That's why he mentions Silvanus, a faithful brother. And then he summarizes this letter with these words. This is the true grace of God. So you can take all of this letter and summarize it all as Peter's been describing the true grace of God. So all through this letter, Peter's talked about God's grace. Let me show you three of those passages. Chapter 1, verse 10, he says, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, the Old Testament prophets prophesied about the grace that we would experience, Chapter 1, verse 13, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns, grace will be brought to you when he's revealed. The joy of beholding him is going to fill you with grace. And then chapter 3, verse 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the, the physically weaker vessel. Here's why. Since they are heirs with you, of the grace of life. You and your wife, your wife, I mean, sorry, you and your husband, you and your wife, you will be inheriting the grace of life. So at the end of history, you'll be receiving this grace. All these words, grace, point to the time when Jesus returns. This is another way of describing the living hope. And this living hope is the true grace of God. When you stand in this grace, of living hope, when you stand in this grace of seeing Jesus, when you are setting your hope fully on the joy that will be yours when you see Jesus face to face, when that's, that's how your feet are planted, when that's going on, you are standing firm. No suffering can harm that. No trial can shake that. No guilt can get in the way of that. No sin can compete with that. You are standing firm rock solid, immovable, nothing will make you budge, you are set. So are you standing firm in this true grace of God? What are you standing in? Maybe you're standing over here like career is where all of your focus is. Or maybe, maybe this upcoming vacation, which is just going to be awesome, and you're resting all your... You've done that enough times, haven't you? It's like, it'll be fun, but... Anyway, I don't want to pop your bubble, but you don't get what I'm saying, right? Vacations are amazing, but the question is, where, where are you standing? This is the true grace of God. Enjoy your vacation. God, God, may God bless you through your career, but don't stand in those things. Stand in the true grace of God of your living hope, and you'll be immovable. That's Peter's second section. And then there's one last section, a fourth truth. We should show affection to one another. Interesting way Peter closes this. Verses 13 and 14. She who is at Babylon, this is the church at Rome, the believers in Rome, where Peter is as he's writing this letter, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So the brothers and sisters in Rome are sending greetings to the believers Peter's writing to. And so does Mark, my son, my spiritual son. He greets you as well. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace 
to all of you who are in Christ. Peter's final command, greet one another with the kiss of love. Now what's going on there? When we're standing firm in the true grace of God, when we're standing firm in the living hope, when our hearts are set upon the joy of beholding Jesus forever, when that's our prize, that's our reward, that's our longing, or that's what preoccupies us, or that focuses our purposes, our hearts will be so filled with peace and strength and joy that we will, we will love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will feel affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter calls us to show that affection for each other. Now, we have lots of different cultures here. And every culture has their own ways of showing affection, right? Some, some cultures like a, like a warm handshake, and that's a beautiful thing, okay? Other cultures like a, like a pat on the back, and that, that's a beautiful thing. Other cultures like full-on bear hug, and that's a beautiful thing. And other cultures like kiss on both sides, of the, both, both cheeks, right? And that's a beautiful thing. So, so we gotta kinda work this out here. We wanna be culturally sensitive to each other, okay? But Grace Church, let's work it out. Let's work it out. God will give you wisdom. Let's show, first of all, let's have affection for each other, which will come as we set our hearts on the living hope, as we're standing firm in this true grace of God. The affection will flow. Let's have the affection. We don't want to put anything on. Let's have it, and then let's show it. Let's show affection to each other. Now, I want to close this message the same way Peter closes this letter. Look at those last words. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. When we set our hearts on this living hope, when we really set our hearts, really set our hearts on Jesus Christ, I'm going to see you face to face one day. When we really set our hearts on that living hope, and we understand that this living hope is ours by God's mercy, not by our earning. When we understand that this living hope is secured for us by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, paying for our sins, it is secured for us. When we see that this living hope is guaranteed because God is protecting us all the way to the end, he's going to keep us on the road to heaven, he's going to keep us all the way to the end. When we understand back in chapter 1 that this hope will never disappoint us, that this hope gives us actual tastes of heaven's joys now, when we understand what this living hope is and we stand firm in it and we set our hope on it, we will be filled with peace. We will be. And so, Grace Church, because of this living hope, peace, 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 beautiful peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Peace be to you. Let's stand. I want to pray. Father, I ask that you would especially touch those who are going through heartbreaking trials right now. And that you would comfort them with these truths. You would strengthen them. They could resist the devil. 
they could humble themselves under your mighty hand, trust your love and your wisdom. God, meet them now, I pray. I pray for anyone here who is not yet trusting Christ and that, Lord, through this passage, they would have seen the beauty of Christ and the faithfulness and power and love of you, God the Father, and that they would want you more than anything and that they would turn from their sin and put their trust in Jesus and be forgiven and reconciled to you today. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who's maybe not going through a trial and is feeling kind of complacent that you would grip their hearts with the urgency of standing firm and living hope. And Lord, you'd pour out your spirit upon us. We praise you for your love for us. We praise you for your power over every circumstance in our lives and that we can trust you. And Lord, we want to worship you now. So come and move as we worship. In Jesus' name.